Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. I, I will say that, again, yeah, D'Angelo's like a, what I call a lifetime artist. You know, you only see one or two of those kind of people in your whole lifetime. Um, and when someone comes in with the goods with that much, you know, a lot of times on a record you're trying to invent excitement and invent depth. Uh, but, you know, with him, it was just incredible. Uh, and still is. Bob Powell, you yeah. yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants Podcast. A podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at Silent Giants Podcast. To keep up with my life, music, and more, be sure to follow me as well at, at Corey Cambridge. Today on the show, we have a very special guest, Grammy Award-winning engineer and producer Bob Power. Bob has recorded some of the most critically acclaimed albums in hip-hop history. Albums like Midnight Marauder and Low End Theory by Tribe Called Quest and Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul, and a whole lot more. Through recording these classic albums, Bob has helped to pioneer the sound of the native tongues, a collective of 1980s and 90s hip-hop artists known for their positive lyrics and eclectic sampling of jazz-influenced beats. In this interview, we're going to focus on the makings of one of my favorite albums of all time, Brown Sugar by my hometown hero, D'Angelo. This album defined the sound of my city, and launched D'Angelo to superstardom. Enjoy as Bob explains his upbringing, how he broke into the music industry, and the making of D'Angelo's Brown Sugar album. Richmond, I dedicate this episode to you. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the Grammy Award-winning engineer, producer, and composer, my friend, the silent giant, Bob Powell. Do I sound okay? I prefer with 58s not to get too close because it gets kind of boomy. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Is my voice full enough? Yeah, so it sounds great to me. Good. Okay. Yeah. What's up, Bob? Hey, man. <laughs> How you doing? <coughs> Other than being a little under the weather, I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, you look great. Hey, man, I wake up every day. You know, it's funny. I read the newspaper so I don't complain anymore. Yeah. If you look around at what's going on in the world, it's and we live here the way we do, it's kind of hard to complain about stuff. It's very, very true. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I can't complain. I'm, I'm sitting next to Bob Power today, so, you know, not a typical day. Oh, you'll complain about it later. Don't <laughs> worry. That'll happen. <laughs> well, uh, Bob, let's get right into the interview. So, tell me, where are you from originally? Um, 
my folks are Chicago people. They grew up outside of Chicago. I was born there, moved to Westchester, 20 miles north of the city when I was three. Pretty much grew up there uh, and went to St. Louis, did my undergrad in the early 70s, followed that with eight years in San Francisco, moved back here in 82. And I've been back here ever since. So, well, Warren, shout out to Westchester, which is the, I call it the greatest suburb uh, in the world. Because <laughs> you know what's <laughs> funny, man? When I was a kid, I hated it. Of course, you hate where of you course. grew up. You go, oh my god, it's, it, damn, it's not the city. I hate this stuff. I want to go in the city and be tough and hard and noisy. And now I go up there and I drive around where I grew up, and I'm going, wow, this is really nice. Yeah, yeah. No, I, used, I used to be a nanny in Greenwich, Connecticut. Okay. So. so I used to take the kids when I was in my nanny days, rapper nanny, and I would take them to uh, the Westchester Mall, which is... That's after my time, actually. You know, you got to understand, I left that area in 1970. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there so, was no Westchester Mall. You know, <laughs> uh, the, the milkman was still delivering with a horse. I'm kidding. I'm joking. Oh, I was like, wow. No. <laughs> but you know what? I think about my parents' lives, and you know, they were born in the 20s, and when they were kids, the milk came on with a, even though everybody had cars, there was still a guy with a horse and a and a buggy with the milk. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of your parents, where your what was their profession? My dad was a television producer, which is sort of where I got my thing for uh, electronic media, I guess, and my mom was a school teacher. Okay. School teacher. Funny how all those things are kind of intertwining your life now. <laughs> yeah, you know, I never set out to be an academic. I'm at NYU now. Um, and I still, that's sort of 60% of my working life. So I'm still really busy in the studio. So I don't consider myself purely an academic. Um, it's funny. It's, I never expected to be here. So when you were in school, were you uh, growing up, were you a good student? Man, I grew up in the 60s. Look at me now. <laughs> Look at my hair. Uh, I was, can I curse on this show? Oh, hell I yeah. I was completely fucked up as a kid. <laughs> you know, I was, I was fine until sixth grade, until I was about 12 or 13. Then once I hit junior high, man, you know how it is. And it made worse by the fact that it was the 60s, so it was very, like, politically correct to say fuck you to everybody, including your parents. Yeah. So as much as everybody tried to keep me straight, I just wasn't having it. So, uh, you know, I was at Woodstock. I mean... You were at Woodstock? Yeah. So... Oh, what was that like? The first one? It was a blur. Oh, <laughs> that's a great answer. It was a blur, part of my being a bad kid. Um, anyway, so... Uh, uh, no, I was a really bad kid in high school. Uh, happened to get a degree in classical music theory and composition at Webster University in St. Louis, which was weird because I was like playing kind of R&B chitlin circuit bands at night yeah. and studying this other stuff during the day, which, to tell you the truth, I never cared much for classical music. Uh, I just did it because... I didn't know what else to do. I thought I'd be playing guitar for the rest of my life, which I kind of have been. But um, they, I didn't know what to major in. And they had, they had a Bachelor of Music. It's a fine arts degree. You needed crazy, like, 92 hours of music credits to get that degree. So right away I had to jump in. And I didn't know enough to be scared. Yeah. So then I found out. Because when, when did your love for you wanting to get 
and, and at the, the early stages of your of your life, let's say in like high school, like when did your love for music kind of come about? Like or your earliest memory? That was like when I was eight or ten. I mean, my sister had a folk guitar. She was playing "Blown in the Wind." I was grabbing it and learning how to play, you know, "Johnny Be Good." Um, so ever since I was like ten or so, that that was what I wanted to do. And uh, did it come from? Did you start off wanting to play music, or did you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I played for a living for 20 years. That was sort of the first third of my career. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, everything from television shows with Ethel Merman to uh, mafia weddings in Flatbush for $75, taking home the subway at 2 in the morning. 2.30 in the morning from the junction, you know, yeah, uh, in my tuxedo with my guitar. In Broadway my, Junction? The junction in Brooklyn. Yo, yeah. you were at Broadway Junction? Yeah, in a at tuxedo. At 2 in the morning in yeah, a tux? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. White yeah. guy, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you got to survive, even, You can't man. even camouflage. You got you to gotta survive, man. You gotta, I think I just look so outlandish that nobody stepped to me. It's like, he's weird. Wow. And so your first instrument was guitar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still play a fair amount do you play anything else uh, other than guitar yeah because i have a couple music degrees i kind of you know i'm a good arranger uh i'm a horrible piano player but i program really well so i play guitar and bass a lot uh you know generally on records that's what i do um just because it's easy okay it's easy to get what i want um but i know uh the orchestra and instruments pretty well I scored TV for a while, too, so that was... Uh, in, when I lived in San Francisco, um, I worked scoring a television show uh, three months out of the year, which subsidized my jazz career, because all I wanted to do was play jazz at that point. And of course, you can't make money, especially me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I did this TV gig because uh, of my composition background, and um, it was cool. It was cool. I learned a lot of stuff. I learned a whole lot. You mentioned you went to school in St. Louis. Yeah, and uh, studied classical music theory and composition, but really played in rock and R&B bands uh, at night. Why did you get into classical? I said I didn't, I didn't know enough to be scared of it. I didn't know what else to do. I didn't want to be an English major. I didn't want to be a science major. Uh, and to be a music major, you needed to declare that like right away and take a placement test and everything. Okay. And I guessed on the placement test. It, it was a music theory test. I ended up in the middle track. I have no idea how that happened. You know, in theory, I should not have been on the third track. I shouldn't have been there to begin with because <laughs> I played very bad rock guitar by ear at that point. Um, and I just looked around and saw all these you know, kids in buttoned-up shirts and stuff, and I thought, you know, they're doing this, and they're not that smart. So that's sort of what got me through it. I was, just Was there any particular reason why you wanted to go to St. Louis? They'd have me. I was a bad... <laughs> I, I tell you guys, I went from, like, first in my class in grade school to almost last in my class in high school. Uh, I just... I tuned in, turned on, and dropped out, as they say. Um, I was just a really... Uh, uh, I wanted to be super bad, but I was just bad. Yeah. Um, you know, I wouldn't take my sunglasses off. I wore a leather jacket. You know, really stupid shit, kid shit. You, you were like Fonzie. Yeah, <laughs> but not that cool. Maybe um, like the outsiders, like Pony Boy or something. Yeah, I just wanted to be, I, I won't say tough. 
you know, it was the 60s, so you didn't want the life you had at that point. Uh, you wanted to be out in a field somewhere with a bandana on with a pretty blonde girl running through the field, throwing flowers around, smoking joints. You Sounds know? like me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It was a very <laughs> 60s ideal at that point. And I thought, oh, I want to be cool. You know, like everybody in the world, every kid in the world wants to be cool. So, yeah. Anyway, so um, that was a place that would have me. Turns out it actually was a very fertile place. A bunch of friends of mine... Uh, from that era, we kind of didn't fit anywhere else. So we ended up at this university and a bunch of people have like done really well, um, you know, and they were all philosophy majors. So wow. it just, you know how that is. It, yeah. it, what you study in college is not always what you end up doing and it doesn't always have a direct bearing on it. It's funny, it's very much in vogue now where everybody wants vocational training and they want to know how many jobs people get when they graduate from this place. I don't think it works like that. Um, I think college should open your mind to broad ways of thinking that can help you through any area, mm. you know. I, I, I think you know, college should teach you how to think, not what to think. That's me. And so how did you end up um, getting to San Francisco? Um, it's a long story. I had to leave St. Louis. Um, let's leave it okay. at that. Okay. Um, and my folks were living there uh, temporarily, so I moved out there because it was a place to go. I ended up getting my master's while I was there, um, and I studied jazz and production to get my master's. Where did you get your master's? Uh, it was called Lone Mountain College at the time. I went to hippie schools. Um, it's now the arts campus of University of San Francisco, so that's how peop most people will know it. It's called, I believe it's called Lone Mountain Campus of University of San Francisco. You know, it was a small 600, 800-person school, and I kind of, at that time, in the mid-'70s, it was kind of cool. I got to write my own program and then complete it that way. On, on the show, I always kind of give everyone a nickname. I, I think you're like the educated badass. Well, you know, but it was funny because uh, I didn't set out to do that. Um, I feel like getting my master's was almost a fluke. Uh, it was something that I had to do at the time. It, it's kind of complicated, but uh, uh, it was I needed to get my life on track at that point, and it was helping me do that. Plus, the work I had scoring and stuff was really cool. So, you know, it was a time of me kind of coming back to the world uh, in a way, you know, I could have stayed in St. Louis forever and I'd probably be dead now, you know. Um, I, I was, you know, I was playing, but I was hanging out. Yeah. And uh, I think if you're lucky, if you're on the cusp between going the right way and going the wrong way, you get a kick in the ass that's not too hard. Yeah. You know, so yeah. And what were you uh, getting your master's in? in San Francisco? Music. Music, okay. yeah, yeah, and yeah. so professionally, I know you just touched on that you were getting at this time um, a production work. Yeah, well, I was scoring TV. Scoring TV. How, yeah. how did that opportunity come about? Through my dad, he was a producer, so he sort of hooked me up with some people. And what was the first, uh, like, kind of your first day, or do you have any type of memory about about that experience? No, I, I will say there was a guy who was a music director on the show who was sort of a old school, total pro musician. Um, and he passed a few years ago, a guy named Art Juarez, jazz trumpet player, really good trumpet player. Um, 
And I didn't think so at the time, but in retrospect, I learned everything about being a professional musician from him and sort of uh, the skill set you needed and how to, uh, how to carry yourself and how to be responsible on a bandstand and how to shut up and play the music and, you know, um, really important professional stuff that, again, at the time, I didn't really think too much about. But since then, you know, he he, he could read anything. Like, you know, you got to be a good sight reader to be a professional musician. So you could put any kind of chart down him in front of him, and he'd read it and make it sound like he'd been playing it most of his life. Wow. Uh, he'd be interpreting it as he read it as he sight read it, you know, and there were a bunch of musicians, the best guys in San Francisco at the time, world-class guys that uh, I just sort of learned the level that you have to exist on to be that kind of professional musician. Now, I noticed it throughout this conversation that uh, engineering has not, has not been mentioned yet. No, I, I totally backed into engineering. It's kind of like I backed up and tripped over a curb and then I was engineering. <laughs> uh, no, it. Um, I was always fascinated by it and I'd pretty much been in the studio since the early 70s. Um, plus, I was doing vanity records for people in San Francisco, producing vanity records for people. Okay. And I was always really fascinated by the process. I was always asking the engineers, why are you doing this? You know, what are you doing? What are you doing that for? So I could engineer for myself. I kind of knew what the process was if I had a little two-track tape recorder. Um, but I didn't start engineering for other people till the mid 80s and the the way that came about i was working at a place called calliope which as you may know was sort of where all the native tongue tongues came through you know it's funny it was the ch cheapest place in town which is why all the young musicians doing a new kind of music that no one was really funding at that point mm -hmm. that's where they came through you know everybody thinks you know i said oh man he said that it was the cheapest studio in town so all the hip-hop guys went there no there was no money in it at that point so uh uh, anyway, I was working overnight producing some stuff, and the guy who engineered for me all the time was going away on vacation, so the owner asked me to fill in for two weeks. And he says, do you want to fill in for Bob for two weeks? And I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. And in the back of my mind, I'm saying, I think I can figure this out. <laughs> you know. So that's how I started. It's really crazy. And... It's funny, I teach engineering, among other things, at NYU. Um, I teach a lot of things connected with production. I, it's a dirty secret. I've never taken an engineering class in my life, but I was insanely interested in it. Yeah. So uh, I just educated myself. You know, that's pretty much it. And made lots of mistakes. You know, I, I want to take it back a little bit to your move from... <laughs> San Francisco to New York. So why why did you make the move from San Francisco to New York? I was 30. Uh, and I knew I had to move to L.A. or New York to move ahead. I just knew it. Okay. Um, and I, I love California, but I had friends in New York. I had friends who were in the media business in New York, too, who helped me get a leg up. A uh, really good friend of mine was doing industrials, was doing corporate communications at that time. And I got a couple gigs, I mean, big gigs, doing like lots of music for these shows where um, a big company would fly all their sales reps to Hawaii for three days and do all these stage shows and stuff. So I did a lot of stuff like that. 
Then I, I later on I got into jingles, but we'll get to that and scoring for commercials. And, and where did you when you moved to the city? Where did you move to? Uh, my sister had just gotten married, and she had a little place on the Upper East Side. So at that, you know how New York is cyclical with. Um, housing and leases like there'll be a period where there's a lot of places for rent and prices go down a little bit then there's a period where it's really hard to get an apartment and prices go up right uh when i moved into her place it was one of those times where it was really hard to find an apartment so she she got married and i'm like i'm taking your place so that was it so i lived there for 10 years and in that apartment yeah yeah and then at, at around what time period is this this was uh 82 to 93. Okay. 1982? Yeah. Wow, New York City. Yeah, I'm old, man. Like, what was the first couple opportunities for work that you got uh, in New York City? Oh, man, when I moved back here, I was scuffling for everything. Uh, I had a really good friend who is still, like, one of my best and oldest friends, a bass player, who'd been in New York for a couple years before then. So Dave got me, like, a lot of different gigs. And, you know, you play a gig with certain musicians and they go, oh, you know, I have this other gig. Would you be interested in doing that? It's just stuff like that. Plus, my friend, I was doing music for corporate communications. I was hustling jingles and uh, scoring for television commercials, which actually didn't quite click for me until the late 80s, early 90s. And I, st I did a lot of big stuff. I did BMW, Mercedes, oh, wow. uh, the Army, you know, Be All You Can Be. I didn't write that one, but I had to play that on guitar. Get out. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, you know, I was pretty successful at that, and I was trying to do jingles during the day and records at night, and it was kind of killing me. I was dying. So I just said to myself, if you commit to the record business, you got to make sure you make the same kind of money you were doing make, doing scoring and jingles, which at that point was some good money. Um, so in the early 90s, I kind of let the jingle work drift away. And then once you made the transition over to Calliope. Oh, yeah, yeah that was before then. That was the 80s. Yeah, that was around 80, 80. 85, 86. And so Calliope was known for the native tongue, a lot of those artists. Were you familiar right. at this time with a lot of the hip-hop artists or in touch with? There was nothing to be familiar with. I mean, uh, Bombada and, uh, you know, like the Furious Five. Is that right? Yeah. Four or five? Yeah. yeah. You know, that was the kind of thing. But the white community did not know about this at that point. Um, I really, you know, I say this in a very... Uh, um, academic and in the best with the best possible intentions i feel like in a way hip-hop was the first music since jazz that was of by and for the black community mm -hmm. you know because of the way it came up on the streets because of the idea of turntables was the only thing that people had available to make music people didn't have money to go to music school for a long time and learn how to play traditional instruments and it was the most original music form to come out of the black community since jazz, certainly. And jazz had gone through so many permutations by that point that it wasn't that relevant to kids at that point. Um, so anyway, um, so I didn't know much about hip-hop. Nobody I knew knew much about hip-hop at that point. You know, until record companies started realizing they could make a lot of money doing this, late 80s, really the early 90s, um, 
hip hop was kind of for hip hop heads and not for the general public that much. Yeah. Leave it to record companies. Yeah. You know, once they saw they could make money on it, they started shoveling money into it. And there was a certain point in the early 90s, mid 90s, if you could rhyme two words, you got signed. You know that. Yeah. A lot of people got signed that, that you know, <laughs> like, um, and and the thing is, the records were relatively inexpensive to make compared to a traditional record where you had to hire a lot of musicians, right. an arranger, the whole deal. And so at, at this time, when you uh, start engineering for hip hop, was it kind of like looked down upon that you were, you know, engineering for hip hop? I'm going to say something I've said a lot before. Personally, I saw people walk through the door. And I'd been involved in the black community most of my professional life. I played in black. I didn't play in any white bands in St. Louis. I just played in black bands. It was weird. Um, but plus my association with jazz, jazz is a fairly interracial language these days. Um, but hip hop was different to everybody. Uh, for example, the New York studio scene had been integrated for a long time, and studio personnel, studio management, engineers, arrangers, you know, dealing with people who were fundamentally jazz musicians but legit musicians at the same time. So it was a very integrated scene. Uh, and people were used to the jazz language. People were used to saying, what's up, man? What's happening? You know, uh, nothing's going on, man. You know, real kind of jazz, hip stuff. Oh, that's hip, man. That's cool. And all of a sudden, these kids come through that aren't even speaking that language. And I'll, I'll say it, the, the studio support uh, personnel for the most part, was and to a certain degree still is a white male boys club. That's changed, but that's definitely the way it was back in the 70s and 80s, yeah. uh, with few notable exceptions. So a lot of these people saw kids walking through the door and they weren't speaking the jazz language and they didn't dress that way. They had a new way of talking, a new way of dressing, and literally a new way of walking. You know, so... I think a lot of the New York engineer, plus a completely different way of making music, which was in certain ways antithetical to what people had uh, worked towards and learned all their lives. You know, this, in a, in a sense, this was real simple compared to what they were doing. It was just, oh, you just want to play that thing over and over again and that's going to be the music? Yeah. And you, you're taking that off a record? Yeah. And you're not going to sing. You're just going to, like, talk on top of it. Yeah. And that's the record. Yeah. So a lot of lot of engineers at that point just didn't know what to make of it. And, you know, arguably it was an unconscious racism. I think it was just they just had no idea what, what this was. Mm -hmm. Personally, I saw people walk through the door. They were cool. They were really respectful. They were really nice people, you know, proper kind of people. Um... And they wanted to make music in a way that posed a whole lot of technical uh, hurdles at that point. It was very difficult early on to do stuff. I mean, the earliest hip-hop records, I believe, was just, just a DJ cutting back and forth between two, two of the same discs for the entire length of the record. They'd lay that down onto one track on the tape machine, and that was it. You also had 808s at that point. Um, but... 
technically, it wasn't that easy to synchronize different things, to synchronize drum machines, to deal with samples. Sampling time at that point, it, at the beginning, it was three quarters of a second. That's the most a sampler could fit at one load. So you'd have to figure out ways of tricking the technology and getting it onto tape so you could get the whole sample together. Anyway, let me back up. So personally, these kids walked in the studio and they dressed different and they talked different. And once again, they walked different. Everything was different. But they were cool. They were nice people. And the music was challenging to make it work for them. So I was like, I'm down. What was the what was the first big break for you um, as an engineer? I don't remember. I, I really don't remember. You know, I I worked a lot with Tribe and Dela in the early days, and once Tribe hit, then my career was sort of cemented, and other people started asking me. I I I have to say, from the beginning when I was engineering, people would ask for me because I was a musician. You know, I approached it as a musician, not as an electronics person. Uh, so my career at that point, I mean, I, I was busier than I knew what to do with. Plus I was still doing gigs at night. Like on Saturday, I'd go to the studio and put my tuxedo and my guitar and my amp in the back of the, the room. And everybody knew it Saturday at six o'clock I had to jet because I had to go do a gig for $75. Wow. I mean, you know, you survive, man. You survive. Were you working with one of the first... I read up on the, one of the first bands you were working with. Stetsasonic. Yes. Yeah, that was cool. Um, the, the great people in that band. That was actually before Tribe I worked with Stets. You know, people don't give Daddio enough credit. Daddio uh, is a really broad, broad guy. I think talking all that jazz, I think the second record was way before its time. Yeah, and ex- explain a little bit about Sonic and Daddio, who that is to the audience. Well, it was, it was Prince Paul and Daddio. Daddio, I believe, was the leader of Sonic. That's what it appeared to be like to me. Maybe I'm wrong. Somebody might come up and push me on the street and go, he wasn't the leader I was. <laughs> um, but uh, the characters in that band, Daddio, Prince Paul, Fruit Kwan, um, Bobby, uh, was it Bobby Simmons, the drummer? Um, who am I leaving out here? Who am I leaving out? I don't want to diss anybody. My memory ain't so good. It's okay. Mine isn't either. Um, anyway, really interesting group of people that, to me, who were making a really different kind of music in a different way, and I love the challenge. Well, here's how it started. Heard you on the radio. Talking about rap, saying all that crap about how we sample. Give an example. Think we'll let you get away with that. You criticize our method of how we make records. You said it wasn't art, so now we're going to rip you apart. Stop. Man, I wasn't like, this isn't music. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the engineering community at that point said, this shit isn't music. Don't put me on those sessions. You know, come on, man. These are people. And, and how did you get, um, how did the opportunity come about for you to work with Daylight? Do you remember being in the studio and how did that interaction happen? How did the introduction happen? I think, you know, I just got scheduled on a session by the studio because a normal person couldn't make it. And we met. I didn't work much on that first record at all. My name's not on it. I may have done a session or two. Yeah. Um, but we got along real well, so I ended up doing the next couple albums with them. Um, I'm still real close to the guys. I love those guys. Um, and also, too, one thing I forgot to ask, where is Calliope Records? Where was that located? Calliope Studios was 37th and 8th. Um, it was about 
right in the middle of the block between 7th and 8th on 37th Street. And, you know, that was a time where you just didn't park a car on the street at night. I mean, that, that neighborhood still hasn't quite come around. 8th Avenue, just north of Port Authority, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying, but that's a still pretty rough stretch in there. Um, so all those people came through the studio, Tribe, Dela, Latifa came through, Black Sheep, uh, so that's where I met a lot of those people. But again, Stets was my first, like, oh, this is a real record, and this is going to come out, you know. But it was a, it was an interesting time for me. I mean, I would do, like, three sessions a day, and in the morning I'd do a, a live jazz date to two-track, you know, bass, drums, piano, and a singer live to stereo, no, no multi-tracking. And then in the middle of the afternoon, uh, somebody come in with a Latin dance record to mix for four hours. Then the evening, a hip-hop session would come in. So it was varied as hell, and it was real interesting. It was real challenging to me. Did you feel like, did you know at the time when you were working with Dela and, and Tribe that you were working on something that was going to be groundbreaking? No, no one knows. No one ever knows. I get asked that all the time. No one knows. You know, did you know you were making a classic? No. At the time when you're wor- working on a record, I don't care if it's the third record you've done in that day with different people, but that's why you're paid. You're paid to be there and love it to death. You, you know, you're paid for putting every inch of your personal energy into making that thing happen. That's what you do as a professional. So, uh, you know, while the music was playing, it was the most important thing in the world to me. Uh, you know, you know, I've been in the record business a while. You never know who's going to hit and how it's going to be received. Uh, I'm usually asked backwards if I think something's wonderful and it's going to blow up, it tanks. And if I'm scratching my head and saying, well, you know, I'm not sure about this, it usually blows up. So, <laughs> yeah. How did it feel to get that kind of critical acclaim? And in particularly, these are critically acclaimed albums sonically. So what did it feel like to come from the guy who just moved to New York, who was living in the Upper East Side and... Doing every gig. Doing every gig and, imaginable. and schmucking around. Yeah, to yeah. All of a sudden being very, very well received by the music community. Because I'd worked the hard way for so long, that kind of... Ask any working musician, anybody who's ever made a living playing... You just take it. If you have a hole in the book, if you have an opening in the book and the money's not, like, uh, insulting, you take it. So it took a while, even though I, 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 I haven't looked for work in 30 years, you know. I was booked to the gills, but you never quite believe that it's going to really happen and it's going to always be there. You always figure, okay, well, this is going to blow over, and next January is going to be really tough for me. It's just a musician's mentality. Ask anybody, they'll say the same thing. You, you just never quite get comfortable with the fact that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. So I'm from, I'm from Richmond, Virginia, south side, all day. <clears throat> Shout out to everyone listening to, <laughs> to the podcast from Richmond. And so I definitely can't not talk about D'Angelo's Brown Sugar album, which okay. is for my city. It been to, put Richmond on the map. It put Richmond on the map. But, and D'Angelo also represents what a Richmond artist is. It's a very blues, very jazz-heavy mm-hmm, city. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I think of the sound of Richmond, even when I'm in New York, I put on that album. And so uh, how did that opportunity come about? How were you introduced to, to D'Angelo? 
It may have been Kidar Massenberg. I'm not sure. I I don't. I'm trying to remember. Oh Kedar no, was... no. You know who it was? It was Gary Harris, who's an A and R guy, and Jocelyn Cooper, who was in A and R and publishing at the time. And she signed D, I believe, as his publisher, and then they got the deal with EMI. And and, and how did that uh, opportunity come about? That you were, were you, was there a buzz around him at this time? Uh, I know it sounds funny, but I was just working, and somebody called me up and said, "There's an artist that you know we'd like you to work with. We'd be interested in you working with." Uh, so yeah, I listened. It was unlike anything I'd ever heard in my life. It was unlike anything anybody had ever heard in their life. Wow. So I ended up uh, producing half of that record, half of that album, and mixing a couple other things on it. Because um, did you meet him first and hear him play, or did you hear him play? No, I think I heard his demos, um, which you know were messy, but they were incredible. I mean, very seldom in an era does a musician come along whose stamp is so unique, so fresh, so new, so original, and so identifiable, yet everybody says, oh my God, that's dope. You know, you can have the first five things, but not everybody's going to think it's wonderful. Yeah. But uh, an artist like that, I mean, there are very few artists who create their own idioms. Uh, Joni Mitchell, no one ever put music together the way that she did when she came along. Uh, Stevie Wonder, who actually does it all over the map. Nobody put together music in the 150 ways that he does that's so original and so fresh. And D, you know, I had never heard anything like that before in my life. It just had... It had a... R&B sensibility, but a real old-school gut-bucket R&B sensibility, real Memphis kind of R&B, pre-Memphis, real country R&B, you know, roadhouse mentality, but filtered through the ears of someone who was really into hip-hop. So my reaction, I think, was the same as everybody else's, which is, wow, I've never heard anything like this in my life. And man, he's deep as a performer. He gets to this incredibly deep place. Because uh, on that on that demo, were there any songs that end up making? They end up making. Oh the yeah, album? I think most of them. Yeah, yeah. And the demo was ferocious. It was four track. You know, it was a little four track cassette. I I might have it somewhere. I had a fire a couple of years ago. I lost a lot of stuff, but I'm not sure if that cassette exists somewhere or not. Um, but uh, it was a four-track cassette. They were the same songs. D had sequenced everything out of his Ensonic sampling keyboard, the EPS-16, and that's basically what the record was. You know, I went through a lot of changes about how to how to polish it up a little bit so it sounded like a record, but not so much that it took the funk out of it. I'm serious. That's like, with an artist like that, that's one of the things I learned from D and from a lot of other real breakout artists that... I learned the hard way, but if an artist is really an artist and really has something special and unique to say, then your job is to make sure that it can come off in the recording and stay the fuck out of the way. Was there any pressure or expectation or anything around this album? No, not any more than any other album. You know, every album is important for the people who are behind it. Not just the artist, but the people at the record label, too. So... um, yeah, I mean, Ali and Raphael both heard it, you know, and got it. 
that's why they did those tracks with him. Uh, and was that your first time working with them? No. No, not I with mean, Ali. Yeah, Ali I'd known. Uh, Raphael, I believe I met through Tribe. I didn't mix that song either. I mixed Brown Sugar, but I didn't mix, uh, was it Cruising? Cruising, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Dreaming Eyes of Mine, Higher, all that stuff, uh, yeah. What was the first song you recorded off that album? I don't remember. Uh, I actually don't remember. We worked, I worked in pre-production for a long time. Um, I just needed to make sure that it was together enough to sound like a record, but that I didn't legislate the funk out of it. Now, for, yeah. for folks that um, maybe listen to the show that aren't that well-versed and deep into music, what went into the pre-production of that album? Okay, so D had sequenced the whole record on his EPS-16. Uh, for those people who don't know, MIDI is the language that musical instruments and synthesizers use. I mean, sorry, synthesizers and uh, computers use to speak to each other. Sequencing is when you play something from a keyboard and the computer inside the keyboard or in your computer records what you played, not the sound, but the actual electronic impulses, and then we'll play that back to you. Okay. So MIDI at that time was pretty primitive. So the first thing I did was I took all the sequences and sounds and samples that D had used to that point and brought them into my computer because he was doing it on this keyboard, which it's a little bit primitive. So I brought it into the computer so I could kind of manipulate it a little bit better um and a lot of it was trying to find better sounds that worked better and and at least half the time we went back to what he had at the beginning because it was cooler uh you know i'll be honest with you uh and basically pre-production on a record like that is making sure that before you go in the studio that you all the music is together enough so you can go in the studio and just record it and not go in the studio and say, oh, man, this isn't working, or how are we going to do that? No, you have to think through all that stuff ahead of time. Mm, okay. Yeah. And so... I believe we did some recording together, too. Uh, I had a couple of digital recorders, uh, DA88s at that point. Um, that's where the during the ADAT days, and I had a, my little studio... And I think we recorded some bass and guitar parts there, along to the stuff that he had sequenced already, just to work on ideas. Okay. And what was like a typical session like um, with D'Angelo, like his, his recording style or his process? Well, I'd show up at 6 o'clock and... A.M. or P.M.? P.M. Okay. Be sweating bullets. He'd come in around 10.30. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, it was just, you know, it's the nuts and bolts of putting a record together. You know, first you put down the drum track or the rhythm track. Uh, most of the drums on that were sequenced. So we'd lay those to tape and then start overdubbing. How long did it take to complete the album from start to, to finish? Do you, do you I, I don't remember. I left halfway through the record. Um so I don't. I think I was with him for about four or five months. Okay. You know, I got to go back to what I said earlier. With an artist like that, and there's not a lot of them. I mean, if you think through the eras, there's not a lot of people who are that heavy. Marvin Gaye comes to mind. Mm -hmm. um, you really try to help them to say what they want to say in their way, not your way. And again, I learned the hard way, you know, by making some mistakes and saying, you know what, that was not better. This is not better. It was better that way. So really trying to help them to say the, the stuff in their way and 
facilitate their being the best artist that they possibly can be. Yeah. You know. And you also produced, co-produced five songs uh, on the album. Another reason why this album, I think, of all the classic albums you've been a part of and, and worked on, why this is an album I really wanted to touch on the most was because it kind of was a, a marriage of both of your strengths yeah. as a um, producer of music, composer of music, uh, and also as an engineer, yeah. sonically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how did that happen that there was that trust between you and D'Angelo to come together sonically? Because he hasn't worked with a lot of people. It, 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 it went production. back and forth, man. Uh, you know, it went back and forth. I mean, uh, D is a very smart, perceptive person. And I guess he figured that he could trust me to do the right thing, you know, one way or another. You know, man, I was just trying to get it down on tape and make sure it came out sounding okay. I did, you know, the good news is I didn't have to invent any incredible music. I didn't have to invent any vibe. I didn't have to invent any great singer. I didn't have to jump through hoops to make the shit incredibly cool because it was all there. Hmm. And, and there were, uh, you co-produced five songs in the album, which is all right. Uh, me and those dreamy eyes of mine, awesome. SDM, awesome. A higher, awesome. And smooth, which is one of my favorite songs uh, on the album. Can you give me a little backstory on the on the makings of that. Do you, do you recall anything special about that session? jazz player but he's not i mean he's a really smart musician so he plays what he plays he didn't try to show everybody what he doesn't do well but his little riffing at the beginning and is is really wonderful really amazing um D had sequenced all his music parts, again, in his keyboard where you play the part in and the keyboard plays the sounds that are inside the brain of the keyboard. It sounds like a bass, sounds like drums, sounds like uh, uh, an organ. And I thought that the record would be a little more three-dimensional if we replaced some of his parts with real players. So, uh, for example, on Smooth, I'll take the guitar parts. Um, he had sequenced the guitar parts and he does really incredibly cool things but I just thought okay that already exists a lot on the record those sounds so let's get some real people in so we got Mark Whitfield who is just an incredible jazz guitarist that whole montage at the beginning is smooth where you hear that incredible jazz riffing that's Mark I end up ended up playing some of the stuff on the interior of the record that blink 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 those little octaves and stuff uh, so I believe also that, 
you know, we had used the sound of the synthesizer playing the bass a lot on the record. So I think that was where I got Larry Grenadier to come in. Um, Larry's really one of the top two or three jazz bassists in the world now. It's a weird story, but I had a connection to him from when he was like 13 years old in San Francisco. It's a long story. I had a jazz band, and we shared a bill with him and, and his brothers, who were all very young at that point. But um, so I called Larry to play the bass on that, and he's, he has an incredible drive. You know, if, you, if your time and your drive on your music isn't really, really good, you're going to fall off playing with D you know, because he's so centered as a musician. And fortunately, Larry came in and just pretty much played it all the way through. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And he can write his own music and can produce his own music and arrange his own music. If he was in film, they would call him an auteur. An auteur. Is it easier to work with someone who can kind of produce a lot of the stuff by himself? Or is it sometimes easier to call uh, other folks to, to come into the process? It's just different. It's different. Okay. You know, again, the thing is when someone does everything themselves to sort of convince them, let's broaden the sonic palette on the record just a little bit. And if it's something they've been living with in a certain form for a couple of years, it's very hard. You get demo love. So it's very hard to get out of that. I, I will say that, again, yeah, D'Angelo is like a, what I call a lifetime artist. You know, you only see one or two of those kind of people in your whole lifetime. Um, and when someone comes in with the goods with that much, you know, a lot of times on a record, you're trying to invent excitement and invent depth. Uh, but you know, with him, it was just incredible. Uh, and still is, you know, another really nice thing about doing the record with D was that, um, he had done a lot of organ on the synthesizer he had, which is a real cool sound. It's a very unique D'Angelo sound, yeah. that, that thing he does. got to use real organ a bunch like on hire and stuff and i mean i'm sure he played it in church but he just sat down and started wailing man it was on hire it was so great it was so cool i remember that so did you ever feel because you were well regarded for your sonic ability um in recording did you ever feel because of your background in in composition were you ever like ever felt creatively stifled that you weren't able to express that more until the the Brown Sugar album? Uh, no, man. You know, one thing I've learned, and this is one of the things I tell my students, do the gig that you're in the chair for. Uh, something that never works well. Say, for example, you're an engineer, but you're also a real good musician. Well, what you're supposed to be doing when you're engineering is being a really good engineer and not saying, oh, no, you know, that chord's wrong, or here, let me show you. No, that's not your gig at the time. So, no, I was very clear on what I was supposed to be doing at any particular time. That's one thing I've learned by doing a lot of different things in the music business is do the gig you're there to do. Don't try to do somebody else's gig because they didn't call you for that. Because I'm intrigued by 
you know, how you earn that trust early on? People, people can really tell right away if you're there for yourself or them. And something that's really important to me about working in the studio is that you got to make sure that you got your eye on the right objective. And the right objective, my career, if people had to say, what do you do? I say, I help people. I help people realize their dreams. I didn't realize this till later. But that's a common thread, you know, with all the different things I do. I help people get their dream into reality when you hit play. That's, you know. So um, I never really felt stifled. I also, you know, until maybe 93 or 94, I was still doing scoring for commercials and stuff. So I was getting my musical yayas out. Uh, so I had no bone to pick with that. And I also have been blessed that the musicians I've been able to work with as recording artists have been great musicians, you know? So, no, I'm not going to sit down and show them what to do. Right, okay, you know? okay. And even, even the hip-hop artists that I work with, uh, it's their music, it's not mine. And my job is to help that come alive. Super, super important. It's at the core of everything I do. Wow. Yeah. Well, I have a couple of... Expert questions. And the first come from um, my good friend, McKaylin Blue Spruce. He just won a Grammy this year um, right. for Solange's album, A Seat at the Table. Wonderful. So shout out to Blue. He's also was a guest on the podcast uh, earlier this year. I'm in good company. All right. Thank you, man. Oh, man. We're, we're, we're working hard over here, Bob. Uh, so were you aware that the sonic choices you were making on the album for Tribe, D'Angelo, and Erica would become the sound of an era? Were you going for a specific overall sound? Or are you making records sound the way you like them? And they just happen to have a great cohesive feel. You know, uh, I was learning. That was a huge time of learning for me. And, you know, yes, I was in my late 30s by that point, mid to late 30s. But in terms of engineering, I was just learning so much all the time. Uh, I think because of my background as a musician, that helped me step up about, 370 notches uh i have a I, i've realized over the years i sort of have a certain way that i hear things I hear recordings and i put them together and you know if you ask me to do something twice and do it differently the second time it usually comes out kind of like it was the first time um so i have my natural tendencies as a musician i was helped a lot by the fact that I learned early on that the bottom was super important in hip hop. A giant, if it didn't have a giant bottom, it was not happening. And at the, in those days, it was not that common. You know, a lot of early hip hop records actually sound pretty thin. Uh, so I loved that challenge about how to get that bottom super big. You know, I have images in my mind of Tip and Ali standing behind me when I'm mixing a track on the console saying, more kick, more snare, more kick, more snare. But it's what people push you towards that helps define you and helps define the music. Mm. Uh, so I've been influenced by all the people that I've been able to help along the way. Uh, I never, it's funny, um, I'm so much better a mixer now than I was then. I, it's, I can't even say it's exponential. It's a different universe. But I was learning, and I was really into it. I was really into getting to that place where it was like, wow, 
this is great. That's why it took a long time, because I was learning, you know? And I just refused to settle until it was really good. I'm a lot faster now, because I kind of know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, but uh, one thing, I was a really, really hard worker. I always left my clients in the dust. You know, they'd be sleeping in the back, and I'd still be going up at the console. And so I have another question here from, um, <coughs> expert question from Mark Bird, uh, who you just met. He has a studio here in New York. Uh, MBM Studios, and he wants to know uh, what record was the most fun for you to work on, but the hardest to mix? You know, I just worked so hard on everything I did that there's no harder or easier. Some was, there, the, was there a record that stood out as being more fun? As, as, a, as the session being fun? Um, no, I'll tell you that Challenging-wise, a lot of the records I've done with Michelle, I produced a couple tracks on her first album, and I've mixed four, five, six albums for her. She's a dear friend and an incredible human being, as, as well as being one of those kind of artists I was talking about, mm -hmm. someone who makes music in a completely original and super dope way. Um, but she's always done things musically that sometimes are hard to pull off in a mix, like having a synth bass and a real bass playing at the same time and a couple kick drums. David Gamson also, who's a producer in L.A., who's a real good friend of mine now too, he, um, incredibly skilled guy, musician and everything, but um, he would do stuff, he did stuff on a Shaka Khan record that Michelle played and sang and wrote part of as well, that was really hard to mix. And again, if you have a song with a synth bass and an electric bass, right off, that's sort of an impossible proposition because the rub of the two different bass frequencies will shake the room apart if you're not careful or sound like a mess. Okay. Uh, plus, then you have one, two, sometimes three kick drums going at the same time. Stuff like that is challenging. Michelle's music has always been tremendously challenging because she's such a unique conceptualist. Like her records, she puts together music in a way that nobody else does. So you sort of have to go there and figure out where she's coming from and make that happen. So, um, I mean, her records have been challenging, but really, really fun. I'm trying to think of what else. You know, I mixed a record uh, for a Dutch uh, gentleman um, called Home Ground recently, Stephen Emmer, Stefan Emmer, excuse me. And Stefan is a great musician, a writer, a musician, player. And he got all these uh, very kind of classic soul artists, including Patty Austin and stuff like that, to collaborate on different songs. Well, he had one, sometimes two different string sections going at the same time. You know, anytime you got something with 100 tracks of audio on it, it's going to be an issue. And I have to tell you more and more, I get stuff with a track count that's just 100 tracks. Now, a lot of times, it's just time, the time it takes to go through all those various things because they don't happen at the same time. Right. But sometimes they do. Stefan's record was really challenging because, like I said, at times he had one, maybe two string sections, one, maybe two horn sections, plus a bunch of vocals, plus three guitars, two or three keyboards, drums, a bunch of different vocal tracks. So that was that was very challenging. And a beautiful album, though. Beautifully arranged, beautifully produced. Uh, comes off real well. So, yeah, part of the thing is also technology. 
technology has made it so you have unlimited tracks now. You got to think when we did D's record, for example, we had 24 tracks and you really have 22. I'm not going to get into it, but you have to put a sync tone on one of them mm-hmm. and you can't print anything next to the sync tone because you'll hear it. That is a very interesting dynamic that I, I didn't think about in today's music is the fact that you were only working with 24 tracks. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of, and that's one of the reasons I did a lot of pre-production. You plus studio time was expensive. Now everybody's got a studio in their living room, right? In their laptop, uh, but because there's unlimited tracks now, people just have a tendency to say, "Open up another track, open up another track," without really thinking through the musical or sonic implications of that. Mm. And that's why I get paid is to unravel that. And so, what what inspires you, Bob? Hearing the wind in the trees and the wind blowing through the grass and watching my dog run around outside. (laughs) Uh, I guess music, you know, I can't separate that from my soul. It's not like, oh, God, I love listening to this. It's just sort of like breathing for me. So I don't get that inspired. I mean, I, I get inspired by everything I hear. But I don't get inspired in the way that I used to, where it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. This was so heavy. It's all heavy. Uh, so what inspires me? You know what inspires me, man, is, is helping people realize their vision. I'm very fortunate that I'm in a position where that's what I'm supposed to do, yeah. whether it's in school or whether it's in the studio. Um, my job is just to help people. That's like especially if you think about school, that's my only job. I'm not there to be a gatekeeper. I'm not there to be a hard ass. Uh, I'm there to help people. And it's the same thing in the studio. That is my job is to help people. It's nice. I don't need props. You know, that's, I, I've been very blessed in that a lot of people like what I do. Okay. That's real nice. That's out of the way. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Not that I I guess everybody wants that. I don't know. I never really thought too much about that. But, uh, yeah, the nicest thing, inspiration for me now is getting to help people. That's my favorite thing. So to close out, do you have any uh, advice? uh, What have you learned about this generation of musicians, of young musicians? So incredibly creative. Make me feel like super, super square. You know, the way I put music together and the way they put music together, they are so creative and so uh, unlimited in terms of their vision and how they decide to do things. Uh, Yeah, they're really, really amazing. I mean, to say they're so much farther ahead of where I was at that time, it was a different time, but they are. They are so much light years ahead of where I was at that point. Uh, yeah, their, their, their musical creativity is, they're not worried about being in a box. They're worried about, like, I hear this in my head, or, oh, man, this is really cool. Let's do this. So they're not restricted in the same ways that, that I may be because I have a history of hearing music in a particular way. Wow. Well, Bob Power, I don't want to say thank you so much for being on the show, man. It's my pleasure, man. I you're, appreciate you're you having me. You're a groovy dude. I appreciate you having me. You are a groovy, groovy dude. I really yeah. appreciate you. Thank you for all you've done to, to popular music. Oh, well, like I said, man, I honestly, other than work my ass off, I just help people. You're the man. All right, man. Thank you.
Thank you so much to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. This episode has been mixed by Mark Bird of MBM Studios, located in Astoria, Queens, NYC's number one recording studio for music, podcasting, and other audio recordings. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at MBM Studios NYC. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time. See, we be making love constantly. That's why my eyes are a shade. Blood burgundy. The way that we kiss is unlike any other way that I be kissing when I'm kissing. What I'm missing, won't you listen? Brown sugar, babe. I guess high up your love. I don't know how to make no brown sugar.